Well, good morning, everyone. Would you please take your Bibles, turn in them in whatever form or fashion they are, or turn them on, and find the book of Romans. If you are visiting with us, uh, we're delighted to have you here with us. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one in the pew in front of you, on the back of the pew in some way, and that is uh, page 100 and, or 939, 939 in the Pew Bible, if you're following us there. One of our core convictions as a church for all the years of our existence has been that we are to preach the word as God charges Timothy to in the closing of that letter, that we are to uh, feed upon God's word. So you won't hear many topical sermons the last three Sundays, we've had some standalone messages, and when other men fill the pulpit, you'll hear that as well, but uh, you won't typically hear that, and not typically hear four to six week long series with catchy titles on topics that we perceive are important, from the news to political agendas to our pet issues in religious circles, not taking our cue from cultural trends. We believe that the Bible is what it says it is, and it does what it says it will do. Two verses that particularly drive this, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, we'll get to Romans. All scripture, including the book of Romans, every line of it, every phrase, all 433 verses of it has been breathed out by God. A human pen by a man named Paul but God orchestrating that, guiding him to write each and every word and profitable then for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness so that we're ultimately complete, made fuller and more complete in Christ and that equips us for every good work that we are not to live by bread alone or by food focused primarily on feeding our human bodies but to recognize that our spiritual life comes from feeding on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. In the twilight years of my preaching, I anticipate three more books with you all as the primary preaching pastor, the book of Romans, 2 Timothy, and John, and all that may change, it's all held loosely. In the 13 and a half years of our existence, we have together, in just over 700 sermons, walked through from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy, Ecclesiastes, Jonah, Habakkuk, and significant portions of the book of Psalms and Proverbs. And from the New Testament, two gospels, Mark and Luke, the book of Acts, and then following Romans, the books Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Titus, Philemon, James, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, 1 John, and Jude. And now the plan is for about the next two years of our lives, to gather every Sunday just about, to open up the precious book of Romans and to be fed, to hear from God, to be nurtured, to be grown. It's always intriguing for me to wonder as we start a book, whether it's a, one that we spend four months in, or one that we spend four years in, is how will I be different when we do the last sermon? When we close the amen at the end of Romans, we'll have been through a lot of life experiences that we don't know what they are at this point, but how will God have spoken? 
what of his word will have settled in, will have transformed my life, my walk with him. So, a few things to introduce it, and then we'll dig into the meat itself. Of the 66 books of the Bible, Romans is one of the most read, one of the most studied, one of the most analyzed, one of the most debated, one of the most cherry-picked from, and one of the most memorized. It's been God's great tool for saving many, many people and for growing even more people theologically and doctrinally, relationally, because it will deal much with the blending of the body between Jews and Gentiles in that church body, and practically, as you think about the implications of these profound truths that are really, if we take them to heart, life-altering. Somebody else has collected for me in a title, in an article audaciously titled, Why Romans is the Greatest Letter Ever Written, several people's well-known theologians' comments about it. So let's just preview a few of those. Martin Luther, this epistle is really the chief part of the New Testament and truly the purest gospel. It's a bold statement. It is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word by heart, but also that it should occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. We can never read it or ponder over it too much. For the more we dwell with it, we deal with it, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. John Calvin. When anyone understands this epistle, he has a passage open to him to the understanding of the whole scripture. J.I. Packer, all roads in the Bible lead to Romans, and all views afforded by the Bible are seen most clearly from Romans. And when the message of Romans gets into a person's heart, there is no telling what may happen. Douglas Moo Romans is one of the most interesting and engaging books in the Bible precisely because it shapes the way we think about so much of the universe we inhabit. The contemporary church desperately needs to grapple with what is going on in Romans. It is as if Paul said to the church, let's stop and think about this in the same way God thinks about this. And then let's act. So from what we know about this letter, it was written about 57 AD. Uh, we think that Paul was near the end of his third missionary journey and that he was in Corinth for a season of time, prepared to go to Jerusalem to take an offering, and then ultimately wanted to head toward Spain and pass through Rome on his way to do that. And those of us who know, Rome is where he ended up being imprisoned and ultimately dying. Practical, it, uh, there's theories galore about why did Paul write this? Why did he say what he did? Lots and lots of good thoughts. It just seems on a practical level, he's writing to a church body. He did not plant. He has not known personally, very much like the letter of Colossians that we just walked through, but that he is preparing to meet, introducing himself and his doctrine to them um, and so theologically, he's wanting them to know, 
And chapters 1 through 11 particularly are just rich with doctrines. Big news, bad news, good news, very hard to accept news. And then the last five chapters, more of the application of those gospel truths. Before we start, since we've already done four quotes, let me just very, very quickly interject uh, for those of you who are normally here, why I use so many quotes in sermons. Number one, I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer, and I'm totally comfortable with that. But if we lined up all of our IQs, I'm probably in the bottom 10%. So I need help, and that is part of why. Secondly, because I have a legal responsibility, all of us pastors and oral communicators do, to be sure that we're careful to credit the source of ideas that we get and that we can't share others' ideas as if they are ours. Plagiarism in preaching is rampant today, unfortunately, tragically. And I want to try and distance myself from that evil as much as possible. And third, I'm always desirous of conveying the glories of Christ and his truth in the best ways that they can be said. And most of the time, 99% of the time, I think others say it better than I do. So I'm just simply saying these have fed my soul and I want you to be blessed by them. Why would I withhold them just for me so that I can say something that maybe isn't quite as powerfully worded? So doesn't mean we endorse everybody that we quote, but for a particular thought that it is said well by them, and I recognize that some of you wish I didn't do any of that. Some of you wish I did only that. Somewhere in between that, I hopefully will land throughout this. As always, when we start, I want to encourage you to maximize this study. It's very easy to just let the pastor, the preacher do the work, and you just show up and listen intently for 40 to 45 minutes every Sunday and go home and do little else with it and then show up again. There's, there's a growth and a goodness to that. I don't want to diminish that. But what could you do in between the ending of one sermon, the beginning of the next? Whether it's the way we design our midweek emails, for three days think back, for three days think forward, and seek to make all that you can out of those. Uh, Colossians 3.16 exhorted us as a church body to let the word of Christ dwell richly in us. So Martin Luther challenged us. We should memorize every line of it. Um, but the idea of just how might you grow in Romans even beyond what we're seeking to do on Sunday mornings or if your life group also discusses it throughout the week, what else can you personally do? So many resources at our fingertips that either are free or very, very reasonably priced. How might you Become more Romans rich. How might we as a whole body become Romans shaped? All right, I think I'm done with all my exhortation. Let's ask the Lord's help as we begin to dig in. Father, this morning we ask for you to do for us what Jesus did for his followers that day that he rose from the dead. Interpret to us in the scriptures the things concerning yourself so that our hearts burn within us. Please open our minds that are so weak, so far below your thoughts, 
to understand your astounding revelation better than we ever have. Open our eyes, so weak, so dimmed, to see Christ more vividly, clearly, and gloriously. And open our hearts, wounded, sinful, broken, yet being healed by your grace, to love you more and more. Through this book we pray in your name. Amen. So verses 1 to 7, well, we could say this. The first 17 verses of this chapter kind of stand like a large introduction. We could say that the verses we'll look at today, verses 1 to 7, are an abstract of the whole book. And then verses 8 to 15 are really Paul's cover letter for his resume. So it comes after you read his resume, someone, and then the cover letter. And then you get to the thesis statement in verses 16 and 17. And from there then we begin to launch in and Paul begins to layer in the themes and the doctrines that he's going to address. Verses 1 to 7 in the original Greek, I'm told, are one sentence. So this is a pattern of Paul. He did it in Ephesians 1 as well, where he starts on a thought, and then it just, he just keeps adding another one, another one, another one, another one. He can't stop. So all of this is packed together from the introduction of himself in verse 1 to the greeting to the church in verse 7, and in between is just this tremendous paragraph that we call a greeting or an introduction to the letter It is his least personal one and therefore most formal one because, again, it's a body that he doesn't know. It's his longest one, and again, longest epistle, so longest intro. And it is, I think could be argued, his most theological one, though every one of them are dripping rich with that. But as we start, it might be good to ask, if you were to write a letter to a church body, you've never met. And if you want just a practical example, think of uh, the Christian church in uh, Lithuania where the Hells are. Think of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Nairobi. Boy, somebody doesn't like Romans. In Nairobi, uh, think that's Buck. Yes, it's Buck. (laughs) He'll get used to it. It's his first book, all right? So... Or the church in Nairobi, or the house church where the Nathaniels are in Israel. What would you write? How would you start it? How much would you talk about you? How much would you talk about them based on what you know about them? And how much would you talk about what the letter is going to be about? So, just interesting, perhaps. Yes, the body of Romans uh, and what, what you would say in the whole body of the letter is huge, but God chooses in many of these New Testament letters to to include the greeting and to include the conclusion, even though we would say, well, just give us the meat. Let's dive right into the heart of it. But God uses even these introductions to feed us. So let's look here at how Paul speaks about himself in verse one, the church body in verse seven, and in between, connecting them to God's great gospel plan. Please follow as we look at this one Greek sentence. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, 
who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness. By his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So typically in their letter writing, they started with the author and introducing themselves. And so Paul here identifies himself. Most of his life he's been known as Saul. But here, writing to largely a Gentile audience or church, we think, he uses his Gentile name, Paul, and begins, lays out three important characteristics about himself. He always leads, it seems, with servant. That's the most significant thing before he talks about holding the most elite position and ministry Christians have ever known, apostleship, to a tiny handful of people ever. He starts with the lowliest position and sees it as the most identifying and honorable. We know just recently from Colossians, whether you think of chapter 3, that gave instructions to slaves, bond servants, and to their masters, or you think of chapter 4 in that list of workers at the end that several of them were identified by Paul as servants. Paul doesn't compartmentalize and see believers in different realms. He sees all of us as servants and leads the way himself meaning he sees himself as belonging, and you'll see the word belong down in verse six, entirely to God. He is entirely God's and simply wants to be his servant on behalf of him or for his name's sake, sent to serve these people and these believers through the writing of this letter. This follows Jesus' teaching on servanthood and the Old Testament examples where over and over and over nobody identified themselves as a celebrity who ought to be followed and is looking for more followers on social media, but as quiet, humble servants of God. Then he introduces called to be an apostle, bringing in some of his authority uh, for writing the letter and why it should be listened to and adhered to. And this is because This is a man who has seen the risen Christ. Not everybody who saw the risen Christ was made an apostle, but 13 of them were. Paul identifies himself as the last and the least of those, but he had a unique one from the others. He didn't follow Jesus around for those years of ministry. He was actually opposed to Jesus until years and years after he was ascended and gone. But then Jesus interrupted his whole life and his mission to try to shut down the church, showed him the risen Christ and blinded him by that and ultimately changed his life. And then in years of solitude, God gave him unique revelation from any other apostle and so that even as he and the other apostles came together, they affirmed together that in their various settings they were all receiving that same revelation. But it seems Paul's was even richer and deeper 
than the others. And then third, he's set apart. He's marked off. He's got a distinguished, special purpose. He's been chosen by God, called by God, sent by God. And he is set apart, if you think about it, from all of his past, all of Phariseeism. He's set apart even from the other apostles in that he largely ministered on his own and not in Jerusalem to the Jews like the other ones. And he's even ultimately set apart from his church in Antioch because of, of missions work and going out to plant churches and pastor them. But what he's set apart to or for is the gospel of God. First use of the word gospel in Romans. Uh, we could say this is the first note in the concerto that Paul is going to strike to play the gospel throughout Romans. And this is the first note of that strike. Tom Schreiner says, the gospel Paul preaches is both from God and about him. The gospel is first and last about God, and particularly how God has revealed himself in his son. Paul's emphasis here is that the gospel doesn't center around humans. The gospel centers around the Godhead. Father, Son, as we'll see also in these verses, Spirit as well. Even as he finishes introducing himself, before he gets to addressing the Roman church, this, it seems, I'm going to hypothesize, that his writing about being set apart for the gospel of God spurs him to what he writes in verses two through six before he gets to the rest of his greeting in verse seven. Um, it just launches him into beginning to talk about the gospel that he loved so much. Uh, Douglas Moo offers a, a three-point outline of these verses that for those of you that like outlines might be helpful and those of you that like alliteration. The continuity of the gospel or I might also say the promise of the gospel, the gospel promised. Verses three to four, the content of the gospel or uh, what the gospel is about. And then verses five and six, the commission of the gospel or my preference would be the gospel's effects on a local church and worldwide. So first of all, verse two, the continuity, meaning the consistent operating of something for an extended period of time. And Paul's point here is the gospel is, is, has been promised, that the way God set up the plan about the gospel is that he set it up even before the foundation of the world. Titus 1-2, also written by Paul, early in that letter he says, God, who never lies, promised eternal life before the ages began. So the plan is there even before the Holy Scriptures are written. But it's, God's point here is he then conveyed it thoroughly throughout the Holy Scriptures through his prophets. So you just think through his men. And prophets can be those that had the message of God, but also those who were shadows of Christ in whatever way. Opening with Abel and Noah and Abraham and Joseph and Moses and Joshua and Elijah and David and Jonah and many, many others. Through the events like the flood and the ark and the gospel message in that, the forming of a nation, 
slavery of the Jewish people and the exodus, the years in the wilderness and the promised land, Mount Sinai and the law, and again the list could go on. And spoken and written words of God when he appeared to man, of many leaders, many kings, many judges, many prophets, from Genesis to Malachi, and all the dozens of different kinds of books in between. As David Murray puts it in the title of his book, Jesus on Every Page. Part of Paul's press here is, God did not decide here that plan A with Israel wasn't working out like he had hoped. And he was going to punt on that one and go to plan B, a new and different thing. Rob Ventura puts it this way, the gospel is not a break with the past. Rather, it is the continuation and consummation of it. From the book of Genesis with its first gospel promise and all the way through scripture, we see the Bible speaks about the doing, dying, and rising of, and even though his name is not used, he's referred to as many things, Messiah being a prominent one, Jesus Christ our Lord on our behalf. And Tom Schreiner, the gospel constitutes the fulfillment of the saving promises found in the Old Testament. God promised to bless the world through Abraham, and now that worldwide blessing has become a reality through the Pauline mission. So God, through Paul, to launch everything else he's going to say in the gospel, makes it clear the gospel comes from all of Scripture and this is, we are just at a point in time here as Paul writes this, where it is really coming into full fruition. Verses three and four then by Moo's uh, little outline is the content of the gospel or what the gospel is about, but not just the what, but the who as well. Schreiner says, Paul sketches briefly, but pregnantly, fitting for our body, the gospel that he preaches. And so he begins now to refer to Christ, and will do so in several ways. First of all, identifying him as his son. And then you'll also see in verse 4, son again, only now with the title son of God. The first thing in the centerpiece of the gospel is his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the first thing that Paul notes about him was, historically, so again, following the Old Testament promises, that he was descended from David. That's the way Matthew opens his genealogy, is to make that clear in the New Testament. This is directly connected to all of these 40 or so people that are listed in the genealogy at the beginning of Matthew. That Jesus is the one who was promised. He is the one born in David's line, bodily, in the flesh, as a human, so that he will ultimately sit on the throne. So Paul describes Christ in two different ways. You might have noticed it in how I tried to read it at the beginning. You'll see according to twice. According to the flesh in verse 3 and according to the spirit in verse 4, emphasizing both proof that he was human and proof that he was God. Mu, again, remaining what he had always been, namely God, he became something he had never been, namely man. Interesting title here, Spirit of Holiness. It's the only, we, we say in short, Holy Spirit. It's the only time this expression is worded exactly like this. But I think it's just pressing that the Spirit was involved in the resurrection, part of the empowering of it that allowed Christ to rise from the dead. God at work triunely 
in the resurrection, which was the greatest evidence that he gave for backing up all the Old Testament promises and doing so with an incredible precision. I have one example on the screen there from John 2, early in Jesus' ministry, where he just made it clear, referring to his body as the temple they would destroy, that three days later he would raise it up. And the disciples, recognizing this promise later, believed it even more. The hardest promise of any human to fulfill is to rise from the dead and to predict how you would do it and when you would do it and why you would do it. That means that all the other promises that are less difficult to fulfill can be counted on, can be trusted. The resurrection from the dead declared God's power loudly in the echo chamber of the universe and throughout time. It was what visibly separated Jesus of Nazareth from every other human who has ever lived. And then, in case there's any doubt or uncertainty about who's being described, Paul, after opening with his son, finishes this thought here, or pauses with this thought, Jesus Christ, our Lord. As Calvin said, the whole gospel is bound up in Christ, so that if anybody moves a single foot away from Christ, they withdraw themselves from the gospel. Both of these, according to, uh, I'm going to skip that. Verses 5 and 6, the, by Moo's uh, outline, the commission of the gospel, or how the gospel affects both individuals and churches and the world. The ministry of the gospel would be another way that we could say this. So now he begins, he turns from Jesus and begins to talk about the effect that that will have. So first of all, just on himself. It's through Christ, that's the only means, through the gospel, that we have received two things. And I think they're tied together. Somebody even said, just think of it as gracious apostleship. Apostleship for the purpose of grace. This is the first time that grace is used in Romans. I'm told it will show up 23 more times. So if you like that kind of trivia, start marking it and noting it and seeing it. It prompted John Piper to say, you cannot comprehend Romans if you don't comprehend grace. We'll see it again and again. It's the heart of the book and the heart of the gospel and the very heart of God. Unmerited, unearned, undeserved kindness, favor, goodness from God for one reason, because of his son, Jesus Christ, and all that he has done. As somebody worded it, it's uncaused favor uncaused by anything in us, favor from God. And Paul sees here not only his salvation as being full of grace, but his appointment to be an apostle as full of God's grace as well. At the end of the letter, two years from now, we'll study this verse. Because of the grace given me by God to be a minister, he doesn't even use apostle there, to be a minister, a servant of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, in the priestly service of the gospel of God. Much of the same language that he's using here at the beginning as well. God's grace drove all of Paul's passion and purpose and mission. He never could get over amazing, astounding grace. Piper, grace has its own power. You don't work it up. 
Grace is not just forgiveness of our sin and mercy on our ministry. It is also divine power that comes to us through Jesus absolutely freely for the sake of ministry, whatever ministry that is that God calls each of us to. And why does he grant that grace? Why does he appoint the apostles to tell about the grace? What does God want his grace to ultimately do? To produce in sinners stunning obedience of faith. Another interesting term that we don't see very often uh, in the scriptures, it could mean the obedience of faith and repentance in order to be saved. And it could mean, and might mean both of these, the obedience that genuine faith always produces. Or the way that Andy Nacelli puts it, ongoing obedience that is the fruit of ongoing faith. Not yet perfect, but grace is transforming our sin-filled lives into increasingly righteous ones. You think about it, James 2 is pressing on this. Faith without works, or we could paraphrase, faith without obedience is dead. It's worthless. It's not genuine. And so Paul, in Romans 15, speaks of what Christ accomplished through him to bring the Gentiles, and where we expect him to say, to faith. He instead says, to bring the Gentiles to obedience. Not skipping faith, but through that faith, obedience by both word and deed. What is the even bigger goal than the obedience of faith is the sake of Christ's name worldwide among the nations. So Paul's writing here to a new church or a new group of people, a new place on the map where a church has been planted and believers are gathering and Christ's name is being lifted up and they are living lives of obedience by their faith that Proclaim his glory. Piper again, the ultimate goal of all God's dealings is that his name would be known and admired and cherished and praised above all other realities. Remember Psalm 96, two weeks, two Sundays ago that we opened and we saw over and over God's desire for all the nations, all the peoples, all the families of the world, for everyone in all the earth that God has created to praise his name. Hence, we just sang a few minutes ago, let the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad over the salvation that God provides through Jesus Christ. And now, Paul finally begins to turn his attention specifically to the Roman believers, or the believers in Rome, including you. So now he's connecting them Here's God's big thing. From Genesis on, even before the ages, gospel's been at work. Christ was raised from the dead. And now the effect of that is the obedience of faith and happening around the world and now specifically in this city, Rome. Whether you think of that as, in that time, the epicenter of paganism, where emperors setting themselves up as the gods to be worshipped, defying, shaking their fist in God's face, even perhaps in part of why they killed Jesus. Or whether you think of Rome today, not only as a place of incredible history and beauty and culture and food, 
or whether you think of it as the center of Catholicism and potentially damning beliefs. In the midst of this great city, God has drawn people to himself through their faith in Christ, his son, and his resurrection from the dead. And now he turns to address specifically the recipients of the letter, and here is his greeting to them. To all those in Rome who are, and now he gives two descriptions and two blessings. First of all, loved by God. I don't know if you remember Colossians 3.16, but when uh, right in the middle of that chapter, filled with commands, it says that we are beloved of God. And here again, Paul emphasizes it as he so often does. Later in chapter 5, Paul will describe it this way. I love this word picture. God's love has been poured. Think waterfall. Think fire hydrant. Think incredible amounts of something into our hearts so that they're overflowing. They're brimming full of the love of God through the Holy Spirit he's given us. That as the Spirit comes to inhabit us, drawing us to salvation, it is filling us with the love of God. And then three chapters later in Romans 8, some of you may immediately have gone to that in your minds, we, Paul unpacks this so beautifully about the love of Christ and just emphasizes this is a love that will not let us go. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, and the list could go on. No, none of these things will be able to defeat us. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And the love is what empowers us. He goes on then to list some more. Can death separate us? Life, can angels, can rulers? Can anything present, anything to come, any power, any height, any depth, anything else at all of creation? And the resounding conclusion is nothing will be able to separate us from that love. Piper, the special covenant love of God for us will triumph over everything that tries to destroy our faith. Hallelujah for the love of God. And secondly, that in calling and saving them, God has elevated them to tremendous status, sainthood. So you see servant in, chapter, or in verse 1, you see saint in verse 7. We're equally both of those. That God works to, for us, and, and Paul combined that, priestly serving uh, of God. Combined it here to say that our sainthood is not something we work our way into as, and not something that is granted to us after death. It is our identity from the moment we come to know Jesus. He pronounces us his saints. And may the, those loved and saints in God especially enjoy and have even more heaped on them the grace of God, so second use of grace, and the peace of God that comes from outside of us, from God, the God of peace, because of a restored relationship with him. Both of these are capturing this wholesome, healthy, well-nourished being of someone under God's favor. Paul will combine both of these later in Romans 5, where he speaks of having peace with God and of obtaining access into God's grace, this treasure house of God's grace, and that brings rejoicing in the hope of glory. 
Sometimes it's helpful. So that's the introduction. Sometimes it's helpful to maybe take a little different angle. We've walked very methodically through each of these thoughts, seeking to be honoring and true to God and understanding each of them. But now maybe perhaps we can turn it sideways a little bit and look at it from a little different perspective in a very quick, at a long closing and a short closing. You get, you get what you paid for this morning, the short closing. <clears throat> what does God reveal here? And I want you to just to think, and maybe you take these home and ponder these through the week. What does God tell us about God himself? What does he teach us here? And I would just put forth to you a few thoughts very quickly. The tandem working of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit to accomplish the gospel work that they have intended to do from the beginning until it is completed. And that God keeps his word. He makes promises for centuries and then fulfills them beyond what we can imagine. Secondly, what does it tell us particularly about Christ? He's mentioned, identified five different times in here. Really six different times, sorry. Verse 1, Jesus Christ. Verse 3a, his son. Later in verse three or 4, son of God. Christ Jesus, our Lord in verse 4. Verse 6, Jesus Christ. And verse 7, Lord Jesus Christ. Every single time Paul refers to him, he uses a light, slightly different wording of it. But he's capturing an expression here. Jesus is our master we serve. He is declared and demonstrated to be the Son of God and the Son of Man who was dead, who was raised to life, and through whom now we all receive everything that God has to give us. What does it tell us about the gospel? Not a lot of detail. We have resurrection. We don't have any mention of the cross, any of the suffering. But we see clearly the, the centrality of the gospel, that Paul's going to put it right up front, first thing he talks about, and the immensity of the gospel. Eternity past, it's been planned all the way through eternity, future, forever and ever. And then, what does God reveal to us about the church? Lots of details here. Let me just very quickly give you them, and I'll give them to you in more detail uh, in the midweek, if I remember. Verses 5 and 7, we're recipients of God's immense, immeasurable, amazing grace. Verses 1, 6, and 7, three times we're told we're called by God to a great salvation and to a great position and to a great mission. Verse 5, our faith is shown, proven, expressed in obedience to God. Also, verse 5 later, the believer's calling and faith-filled obedience is not for themselves, but for the sake of Christ's name. And verse 6, we belong to God. He paid the greatest price for us in order to serve him. Let me remind you again, just paraphrasing Luther's earlier quote, Romans is worthy of every Christ followers knowing every word of it and occupying themselves every day with it as the daily bread of their souls. We cannot do this too much, but the more that we do it, the more precious it will become to us. God, I pray now that you will grow us in an appreciation for you and the gospel through Romans, that you will grow us in our love for you through Romans, that you will grow us in our understanding of you in the gospel and thus grow our faith through Romans and that you will grow us in sharing its riches with others for the sake of your name. Amen.